Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Rollbar. Move fast and fix things. Resolve errors and minutes and deploy with confidence. Head to rollbar.com slash changelog. Request a demo. Get started today. It's loved by developers, trusted by enterprises, and most of all, we use it here at Changelog. Move fast and fix things with Rollbar. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. everyone this is the change log a podcast featuring the hackers leaders and innovators of open source i'm adam stakoviak editor-in-chief of change log on today's show jared and i are talking to johannes schickling co-founder and ceo of prisma we catch up on all things graphql the tech the possibilities the community direction how prisma turned your database into a graphql api their new business direction prisma cloud open source versus enterprise and the upcoming graphql europe conference in berlin on june 15th So, Johannes, we last spoke with you about a year ago, all about GraphQL, why it's so cool, and why everybody's getting excited about it, you, yourself especially, super stoked about GraphQL. And uh, that was a great intro to the technology and to its possibilities, and so if listeners want a full uh, deep dive into GraphQL, go back and listen to episode 255, which is in the show notes. But for those who didn't hear that episode, why don't you give us the high-level explanation again of what GraphQL is, uh, why it's taking the industry by storm, and then we'll move into Prisma after that. Awesome. That sounds good. Yeah, it's, it's great to be back on the show. Um, fantastic shows over the last couple of weeks, so super excited to be back. So yeah, a quick, quick recap of like <clears throat> what GraphQL is, since uh, even though we're, we're living in our um, GraphQL bubble and it's growing, there's still like the majority of the people still don't know what GraphQL is. Definitely. So um, GraphQL is mostly like typically front-end developers get uh, excited about GraphQL first because it really solves one big problem for them, uh, which is basically how they get data into their client applications from an, from an API. So still the status quo today um, is that you that you'd be using REST APIs, and with REST APIs, you sort of have like this fixed structure um, of the kind of data you can get back. So you have like these, um, um, like typically like REST endpoint where you have like a, a get endpoint where you say, "Hey, give me all of these posts, or uh, give me all of these comments for this post," uh, and you just get back a fixed structure, and you have to know about all of these endpoints. Um, GraphQL turns the entire thing a bit around, where like the front end can basically tell the back end exactly what sort of data it needs. So think about it like a SQL query, uh, like a, within an application, you can tell the database what sort of data you need back um, with a SQL query. Think about the same concept sort of for your front end application, that your front end application can say, hey, I'm interested in this sort of data, and the back end gives you exactly that kind of data back that you need. And that solves all sorts of problems that um, like you just, for example, do j- just one HTTP request to your backend and you get all the data that you need. 
Um, and also you don't need to like do n plus one queries on the on the front end that you say give me all the posts and then you iterate on the front end over the posts and you get then back all the all the comments. Um, so all of that just happens in one. That's sort of the the biggest uh, the <clears throat> the the biggest win that you typically get from GraphQL. But the thing that I'm actually most excited about is the tooling that GraphQL enables. So uh, whether that's being a GraphQL playground or that GraphQL maps to to type programming languages, um, there are like so many awesome, so much awesome tooling that gets enabled through GraphQL, which is, uh, I think, overall what gets people more and more drawn into GraphQL. Yes, and I think GraphQL makes, like you said, it makes immediate sense and it excites front-end developers quite a bit because it really puts the power back into their hands, right, to to craft the exact data that they need when they need it and not have to deal with, um, I guess, somebody else's idea of what you know server responses should look like. Exactly. And the, the, the point that you just mentioned of like um, that it puts back the power into the uh, hands of front-end developers, that's actually one of the biggest reasons why uh, not just like one developer decides, I want to use GraphQL, it's like it's, uh, the newest... Um, uh, the, the the newest technology, but it's also why why you would decide on a company level why like an executive team would decide we are, we're using GraphQL because it just makes your development team so much faster by giving that that power into the hands of front end developers uh, and the front end developers are like more decoupled from um, from the requirements of a back end development team and that's just on a company level that's mm-hmm. the biggest. Uh, the the biggest win that you could get. What what does it take to get GraphQL in place? Is it an API? Is it a server? Like frontenders typically don't have access to like the infrastructure. So how do they get access to this tooling? So uh, I give you two answers to that. So one is um, like a more classical setup. Setup would look like this: that you have your GraphQL client in your React application or whatever you have in your client. Uh, could also be a native application. Um, and then you have a GraphQL server. So you have these you have these two parts basically. So the point of a GraphQL client is that you have sort of this um, that you have a more native GraphQL integration into whatever client side framework you're using. Um, so for React, that's really nice because you can basically map uh, the data requirements of a React components directly to a part of a GraphQL query. Um, and the GraphQL client then, for example, Apollo client or Relay, um, then takes care of like uh, like merging all of your data requirements of your current view together in one big GraphQL query and sends that back to the server. Um, and the server, um, that is typically implemented on with a, with a concept that's called um, resolvers. So think about it like um, a collection of functions and each function maps to a certain uh, field or piece of your your data structure that you expose. So, for example, you have a, a type like you have an user entity, and the user entity has um, a field called friends. Then you get a function that uh, is called friends, where you need to that gets automatically called whenever the client is requesting the friends. So, you, on the back end, your your job is to implement the these resolver functions. And make your GraphQL server work. So that that's the most traditional um, setup. What we've actually found <clears throat> is, like you mentioned, it's like quite a big of an investment for an um, for a company 
to like establish new infrastructure, especially for front-end developers. They typically don't have the um, the the maybe the abilities or they don't have the permissions um, to to spin up new infrastructure. So what we've seen, so like like a little trick uh, to get GraphQL adopted in your company, is basically that front-end developers would implement this GraphQL server not as its own infrastructure component, but sort of like as a little thing that also lives in the client. So they basically implement these resolvers in the client, and in the client, you would then map to like another REST API or wherever you get your data from. Um, and this way, you basically, in the client, you have like these two layers. Like you, one, have um, the, 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 this virtual GraphQL server, and then uh, you can basically use GraphQL as it would be implemented as an actual server, and you get all of the benefits in the client. So what we've seen from companies is that they maybe don't get direct permission to say, we do GraphQL. The front-end developers want it so bad anyway that they just um, jump through this extra hoop, <laughs> then go to management team and say like, hey, we told you like we could get rid of like uh, like all of our Redux boilerplate uh, we're so much faster. Uh, please tell the backend team that we finally want this. Because like, if you make it its own infrastructure component, um, you get like still a lot of uh, a lot of performance benefits. Since obviously, like your your API server should be as close to the database as possible, etc. But you could still prove your points through this. And this is a pattern that we see that wow. we, that we see in a lot of big companies. Two thoughts on that. The first one is some people must be desperate for getting some GraphQL, right? Because that is a lot of extra effort, I think, to implement basically like a GraphQL proxy inside the browser so that you can, you know, speak to that and then convince your boss. And secondly, when you finally convince management or your your server-side team or whoever it is to implement it on the server, that has to be like the most epic code deletion day of all time, right? Like when you just throw a party, like we get to rip all this code out of our client now because it's all just exists server side. <laughs> yep, for sure. But the, the the exciting thing about that is since like um, GraphQL, the most of its of the early GraphQL adoption uh, happened in JavaScript, even though GraphQL is now widely spread in any language community. But it's still like when these front end developers um, want GraphQL so badly that they built their own GraphQL server, um, they like use the graph uh, the JavaScript implementation of GraphQL. And very often, uh, you would then also build this GraphQL, this actual GraphQL server later on, um, also in JavaScript. So uh, it's reuse. actually not that much of a of a of a rebuild, but you yeah, like like you say, you, like you can just like take the server, yeah. move it into a different folder or repository, right. like wrap a little HTTP server around that, and you're good. That would still feel that'd feel even better because on one side you're deleting a bunch of code, and then the other side you're getting a bunch of free code because you already wrote it. And just needs to be exactly. tweaked for that for that. It's, it's certainly a forced hand because you're doing it in the prior, and then you 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 know you succeed by getting people to realize that you do need this, and you just get to move it into its proper place. It's it's a true hacker way for sure. Exactly, and you also like that already gets you in this right mindset that you can basically build your your backend in in such a layered way. Like you can think about, okay, this GraphQL layer, I can put it wherever I want and wherever it makes sense in terms of like 
uh, responsibilities and ownership inside of a company? Should that like be owned by the front-end team? Should that be owned by the back-end team? Also in uh, with the dimension of performance in mind, uh, it's, for example, also like with things like Cloudflare, um, like with uh, what it's called Cloudflare functions or like Lambda at Edge, etc. It will right. be possible to run basically API servers at the edge. <clears throat> so there, there are a lot of exciting opportunities, like where you would put actually a GraphQL server. This is such in the in the spirit of open source. You know, the don't ask for permission, right? Like you get your job done and you bring these tools in. This is how open source has spread into corporations for years. is is not top down. You know, some management person saying we're going to use this open source technology. It's some engineer using the best tool to solve their problem. And then later on, you know, the then later on the team finds out, oh, yeah, you know, oh, you've been using Perl to you know write all these automation <laughs> routines for all these years or whatever it happens to be. I mean, that's that's awesome that people are are wanting it so bad that they just go out and and show its value. So, uh, Johannes, as you said earlier, you're kind of inside the GraphQL bubble. Adam and I are, you know, staying outside the bubble. We poke it every once in a while. Um, but you're our access to that community. So tell us, you know, since since last year when we first talked, what's new in GraphQL? What's the ecosystem look like? Uh, what has changed? And I always like to know, like, what are some public play play boxes or sandboxes people can can use aside from GitHub, which is the big one that I think everybody knows about, where they can go and 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 use a GraphQL API. Uh, sure. So I'm. I hope that like the next time we're speaking, you're you're part of the bubble, and the bubble is no longer perceived as a bubble. <laughs> we hope so as well. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're trying to get so, into the bubble. We're trying to get in. So I, I guess you're you're mostly in the and uh, like the the Elixir spheres, um, which actually has has quite good uh, GraphQL support. Um, but like, yeah, this, the, regardless of which language you're using, um, there is like pretty decent GraphQL support for, for that right now on the server and on the client. So that, that shouldn't be, uh, that, that shouldn't be a problem. So what has happened in, in the, in the GraphQL ecosystem? So, um, like what gets me super excited is that like the, the community has just like exploded and, um, <clears throat> pretty much any company that we're talking to. Um, whether like we don't need to ask them any uh, anymore whether they uh, have heard about GraphQL. We're rather like directly asking them like how far they are with with their GraphQL adoption. Um, and like so many like we it's it's rather now like a rare case that we learn about like that we talk to a company and they don't start adopting GraphQL yet. So you've you've seen it like with with recent announcement. Announcements of of Medium, for example, to to moving over to GraphQL. Uh, you, you mentioned GitHub. Uh, GitHub's actually uh, investing a lot into into GraphQL right now. So they want to help more people to uh, to learn about GraphQL. They they really invest a lot into evolving their GraphQL API to build tooling tooling around that. So all of that, the, all of the ecosystem and the adoption has been just has been just awesome. Another indicators for that is, for example, like we uh, the the GraphQL Europe and the GraphQL Summit conference, like the the Graf, GraphQL conferences, they've like doubled in in size over the last year. <clears throat> we see like tons and tons of meetups all around the world, um, like helping people to to get into GraphQL. And yeah, what we really see is like that this is just like the the natural uh, companion for for React. So whoever uh, like builds a new React app, 
for them it's almost like natural to build a GraphQL server for that. Um, so that that that's super exciting. Um, on a more uh, like technical level, um, I think the last time we spoke, um, GraphQL subscriptions was fairly new. Um, uh, on a on a technical level, there are a couple of exciting new things in, in GraphQL since then. Um, for example, uh, the concept of live queries, which is another real time. Um, way of of accessing data um, is is seeing more and more traction in in GraphQL. Um, And also uh, a pretty big topic is the idea of schema stitching. And schema stitching is such a a broadly applicable um, topic around GraphQL um, that um, really fulfills um, one promise of like, uh, how APIs can talk to each other. So um, the the idea behind schema stitching is basically that you can uh, one split up your backends into multiple parts and then join them together. Since like every GraphQL server, for those of you who, who don't know GraphQL, um, what's special about the GraphQL API is that it's it has a schema and therefore it's tight. So um, similar to maybe, as you know, Swagger or OpenAPI, and you have like a JSON schema that you can define, GraphQL um, provides something like that, uh, a lot simpler and a lot more um, intuitive, in my opinion. Um, and with that, you basically, all, each of your GraphQL APIs is, um, is typed. And that means similar as like how you have in a program language and you have a library um, and that library has type definitions and you can like join things together, you can now do the same thing for your APIs. So let's say you have a microservice setup and you've split up your backend into different microservices, maybe a microservice for users and messages and posts. Um, you can basically now have like a, a gateway layer in front of that um, mm. that joins all of that together in one GraphQL API. So you have a GraphQL API for your users and your posts and the gateway basically just says like, okay, every user has posts and just joins it together, like just joins the schemas together. Um, and you can yeah, compose GraphQL APIs and like they snap together like, like Lego bricks. Um, and that's like such a powerful concept that, that GraphQL provides you there. Um, since it allows you to split up things, it allows, allows you to reuse APIs. You can, for example, take the, the GitHub GraphQL API and simply like put that into your own GraphQL server and just delegate to, to that other part. And it, yeah, it really allows you to reuse APIs uh, at a level that was not possible before. Uh, and it also sets the foundation for um, service-to-service communication that you I was just going to ask for that. Example, it seems like... That seems like the the next move then, since you know so many of these services speak over HTTP and REST. It makes sense that if you're exposing these, you know, GraphQL APIs and you're maybe even stitching them together, that all of a sudden maybe this is even a better way to have our microservices or our services, depending on the size of the service, uh, have them talk to each other. <laughs> exactly, and this is where like the ideas of of GraphQL bindings come into place, where where it now gets like with schema stitching and GraphQL being such a approachable language and like the best example really for why it's so approachable um, is like that even front-end developers start building GraphQL servers. Um, That means now something like that um, service-to-service communication where you typically think about 
um, like expert developers who know how to how to deal with protobuf, you can now basically do the same thing with GraphQL with the same type safety with the same um, efficiency. Since like you, you can actually under the hood map from GraphQL to a more efficient format, not just HTTP and, and JSON, but you can map that to protobuf or to message pack, um, and you can but you can still apply the same. Uh, simple and f- fantastic tooling from GraphQL for any sort of communication. For the people who um, who are particularly interested in GraphQL or like who want to push a certain part of GraphQL forward, um, since ab- about half a year ago, there um, there is this, uh, this thing called GraphQL Working Group, where basically people from um, from Facebook, from from us, from Polo, from like different different companies who are driving GraphQL forward, and also who are just GraphQL adopters. So you have people from Atlassian, Twitter, and like tons of different companies coming together in in bi-monthly um, meetings, where we just discuss um, certain in-depth questions around GraphQL, around its uh, type system, which features to add, etc. Um, so this is something that really has has driven GraphQL significantly forward, and making sure that it's like it stay, stays a healthy uh, a healthy language and um, can can be can be adopted from from every different angle. So um, if some of some of the listeners are interested in in getting deep uh, like getting more deeply involved there, uh, that that's certainly a, a great place to 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 get involved. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is a cloud computing platform built with simplicity at the forefront. So managing infrastructure is easy. Whether you're a business running one single virtual machine or 10,000, DigitalOcean gets out of your way so teams can build, deploy, and scale cloud apps faster and more efficiently. Join the ranks of Docker, GitLab, Slack, HashiCorp, WeWork, Fastly, and more. Enjoy simple, predictable pricing. Sign up to pull your app in seconds. Head to do.co slash changelog, and our listeners get a free $100 credit to spend in your first 60 days. Try it free. Once again, head to do.co slash changelog. So let's talk about Prisma now, which is very much on the server side or the implementation, the provider side of the GraphQL conversation, providing tooling around that. Uh, Johannes, you describe it as a performant open source GraphQL ORM layer doing the heavy lifting in your GraphQL server. This is uh, this is your baby, Prisma, open source. Uh, tell us all about it. All right. So, just a couple of minutes ago, we heard about like how, like on a high level, w- how it works to build a GraphQL server, and it's basically all about implementing these resolver functions. And what you do in these resolver functions is basically mapping from some sort of data source to the abstraction that your GraphQL API gives you. And if you think about like what a typical what implementing an API typically is, it's exactly that, like 
typically mapping from a database to your API, like mapping the data from the shape of how it's stored in your database, typically like in a normalized way, or if you're using Mongo, like mapping from some sort of document representation to what you want to return uh, with your API and doing that mapping. And this is what we've seen, like what takes up like 80% of the, of the code of a typical GraphQL server implementation. Um, and also that's, that's typically the, the part as you evolve your application that's the most error prone to to um, to evolve and to change. So um, what we've basically done is with Prisma, we wanted to simplify that part of like how you map from a database to your own GraphQL server. Um, and uh, the way how we do that with Prisma is um, actually leveraging the idea of schema stitching. Um, the, the way how we do that is we actually turn your database, any kind of database, into a GraphQL API. And now you can use the idea of schema stitching to basically uh, reuse the these parts uh, that, uh, that abstract away your database to implement your, your own GraphQL server. So think about you get like little GraphQL building blocks for your database that you can now use to implement your own GraphQL server. Or in other terms, like Prisma is sort of like this glue between your GraphQL server and your database. So that's the that's the high level idea of um, of Prisma, and Prisma therefore is really like you can you could call it like a, a GraphQL database gateway or proxy or like right. this data access layer. So how we actually um, like how we've seen that um, or like how, how we thought about that is. That like whenever you're looking at any sort of bigger project, um, you either have um, like an ORM layer, or if that's not um, typically an ORM layer, is uh, limited in some capacity. So it either like works fairly well as you as you get started with development, but then as you um, as you roll it out into production and you hit a certain scale, um, the it it. Uh, just the performance just sucks because an ORM is typically, yeah, just gives you an API to express your data requirements and that turns then into an typically unoptimized SQL query, uh, which works well throughout development, but then breaks down uh, through, um, through in, in, uh, in production. Uh, the second problem is that typically uh, these ORMs are like a leaky abstraction, so they don't really provide you all of the, the capabilities of a, of a database and you have to drop back to raw SQL. And uh, so if you don't use a, an ORM, what you typically do at these at in bigger projects and bigger companies is that you create this notion of like a data access layer or a data access object where um, in this abstraction, you start implementing your, uh, your database access and you like implement little functions that return to you like here, give me give me a post, or give me like the entire object graph that that I typically need for a post, and all of this logic we've basically taken away and make made it its own um, infrastructure component as a data access layer, and with the power of GraphQL schema stitching, you can basically now like use that and split up your GraphQL server into layers and like access your database through GraphQL or through the ideas of GraphQL bindings, which basically maps 
a GraphQL API directly into your programming language. Well, Prisma is very good timing, I believe, for us, because as you alluded to earlier, uh, Johannes, we've been toying around with the idea of a public changelog GraphQL API around our news and around our podcasts, and uh, we are running Postgres on our back end. My first step towards that was to try a tool called PostGraphQL, which I believe has been renamed to PostGraphile, which is a very interesting project that will introspect your database schema and then basically like immediately provide for you a GraphQL API based specific, specifically on that current schema, um, which I got up and running very quickly, and that was that was very cool to just you know, poke around at our own database via Graph, GraphQL. Um, where that project seemed to stop, and I could be wrong because maybe I didn't dig deep enough, is like it was basically done. Like if I wanted to change, it seemed like if I wanted to change the responses and like the schema structure of what I'm exposing, I was supposed to change my database to reflect correctly. And um, I, know, I know there's some tooling around limiting certain aspects, but um, it sounds like Prisma is kind of that, where are you, where you're providing that layer, but then, like you said, it's the glue, so then you're like, you're writing also a data model or something where you're defining, like, you're you're basically molding it to, to look the way you want. Am I following you? Is that right? Right. So a, the, a couple of points here to, to unpack. So maybe to, to quickly also um, compare PostgreSQL and the approach we're taking with Prisma. In general, these projects are fairly similar, um, mm-hmm. but the, the ultimate goal is a bit different. So for, uh, for PostgreSQL, uh, this is really like just built around um, around Postgres, right. and uh, the the idea is like whatever you want to change, you have to do like natively in Postgres. So if you want to change something, you have to like use your uh, your your current uh, migrations um, exactly. that, that you would yes. already do in on Postgres, and that would then reflect back in your GraphQL API um, with Prisma. Um, we have a bit of a different perspective on all of that. So what we, for example, see is that um, today no long, you, you would no longer just have um, one database in, uh, in, in bigger projects, but you would actually, like the last, one of the last shows was about Elastic and we spoke about the, uh, like the, um, the differences when you would use um, Postgres, when you would use Elastic, and like there are so many um, sp- not specialized databases which really shine at one particular um, at one particular task. So for Elastic, that might be aggregation or full text search. For like MySQL, Postgres, this is like the more relational model. But you also have Cassandra, which is like really highly transactional and and scales um, scales horizontally. So they're like um, specialized databases for a certain for certain scenarios for certain ty- types of tasks, and what typically happens then is you would actually combine multiple databases um, in in one project. So you would have you would store maybe the bulk of your information in Postgres, but also some information in Elastic and some information in in Cassandra or in on Redis. Um, mm-hmm. And so our goal with Prisma is really having like this universal GraphQL API um, in front of all of your, like all of the databases that you use for a project and you get one GraphQL API for that, um, that, uh, yeah, that you basically get one, like your data model uh, joins across your different data stores. 
Um, and that's that's rather like how we see things a bit differently um, with Prisma. And also like there, there's a whole rabbit hole to go 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 into uh, just around that topic since we like we put a lot of thought into um, like surfacing the um, the specifics of a certain database type into its GraphQL API. So we'll have like uh, basically multiple types or multiple categories of GraphQL APIs mapping to the different categories of databases you have. So for example, a relational database will have a different GraphQL API exposed compared to a graph database or compared to a key value store. So all of that is actually um, represented in its own open source specification called uh, OpenCRUD. So you, you could find that on opencrud.org. Um, and this is like a an open source um, project that is that's just concerned about how you would um, how you would expose a specific kind of database more, most efficiently in, in a GraphQL API. So that that is one part of it. There there are two more thoughts on on this. So the the other is um, we don't just with Prisma we don't just expose your GraphQL uh, your your database through GraphQL, but we also use GraphQL for a second part. Um, which is GraphQL also gives you this beautiful language called GraphQL STL, Schema Definition Language, which is a very concise way to express like a type system. So to express enums, type definition, interfaces, unions, and all of that. So, um, and that's like a super, super nice syntax, maybe comparable to like how you do type definitions in, uh, in TypeScript or Swift or Go. Um, so you can basically now use that to describe your data model and you can use then Prisma to either map to an existing database, like, like in your case where you have an existing mm -hmm. Postgres database, or if you're starting out from scratch, you can use this, um, this GraphQL SDL um, and you use Prisma to, um, that, it, that Prisma actually lets, lets, you to, lets you migrate your database um, just given your your data data model representation, so hmm. Prisma actually does the heavy lifting of migrating your database and creating join tables and all of that. So it's really like that. Prisma leverages um, GraphQL one to let you read and write your database through GraphQL, but also it lets you use GraphQL SDL to describe your your data model and to uh, to help you with database migrations. Wow. So, yeah, that that these are these are basically the the ways how we think about Prisma. And coming back to your to your previous point um about that you can um uh basically mold your your schema in in such a way that that you want. Um so uh, again there there are two ways how you could use the the GraphQL API that Prisma would uh, that Prisma generates for you. So in simple cases, or as you might be just um, toying around and you build a prototype, this is where you could actually just use the GraphQL API that Prisma gives you directly and directly like start using it from, from your front end. But um, as you add more business logic to, um, to your application, um, this is what you would want to have like in a, in a separate layer. So this is where, where you would build your own GraphQL server and you would use the GraphQL API that Prisma gives you as building blocks to build your own GraphQL server. So in your resolvers, you can basically get rid of your, your giant SQL queries or whatever you have in there, 
and use a so-called GraphQL binding that allows you to delegate to the underlying Prisma layer. You may have lost me on that last point. Use a, a GraphQL binding to delegate to the underlying Prisma layer. Can you unpack that? Oh, for sure. So imagine you you have a, and all of that is, is fairly theoretical right now. And the best way to to really like look at that is by looking at code. Then then becomes yeah. uh, gets immediately clear. Um, sure. But basically, so you need to like let's get back to the point where you need to implement your resolver, right? So let's say you need to implement a resolver. Um, on the root level that returns you like the feed of your posts. Let's say you build like a like an Instagram and you need to return like a feed that returns you an array of posts. Um, in that function, you you would basically now, now need to return all like you need to query your like without Prisma, you would now need to go to your database, get all of the data that you need there. Um, and then also conditionally on what the client queries, you need to also say maybe they for the the feed for each post they also want to have the comments and the author information. Now you need to implement basically resolver functions for all of these different uh, possibilities. Right. And if you're using a GraphQL binding and you use Prisma under the hood, this is basically where you just provide the entry point to say like, hey, now like let's return these posts here. And um, you then just delegate to this next GraphQL layer, and if the then if the client um, happens to also query information about the author or uh, information about the the comments, the Prisma layer takes care of all of that resolving, and you just need to implement basically this entry point, this uh, the the sort of delegation part that um, forwards the query to the database layer. What if I could just think about my my server the way that I want it to work? And then Prisma could just do the rest from there because it sounds like you're you're <laughs> it sounds like you're taking care of most of the work already. Why well, don't just go the extra mile, and I can just tell you what I would like it how I would like it to look. To to a certain extent, that that's exactly how it works. So, um, but it's basically Prisma takes care of like all of your um, data resolving and and data mapping. So the same way as an ORM is supposed to, um, we can just through GraphQL we can leverage more information about like we know what um, a client would query. We know exactly the, 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 type, the type of information, so we can imp implement that very efficiently. But mm -hmm. all the business logic um, that uh, you want to implement, you would, you would still handle that in your own GraphQL server, such as authentication, authorization, um, actual business logic, like sending an email or processing an order. This is still what you take care of, um, but we make the data access extremely simple. You mentioned that you know uh, some some tools uh, around these things can create you know suboptimal uh, fetching or querying or whatever it happens to be like the the generator has a generic abstraction and so the specific scenario of this particular use case cannot be optimized. So with Prisma, is it hands off so far as like can I tweak? things when I know more than Prisma can know with regard to performance or how a certain data sh structure should be fetched or is it all too far away to touch? Uh, sure. So there, there, there is a way to, to also like drop back to the, to the raw database access under the hood if you really mm -hmm. want that. Um, but in most cases, this already gives you like the, uh, like there, there are two, um, 
two things to to consider here. So one, it's um, is it like the the kind of data that you want to get back? That it's one uh, one scenario, and Prisma already gives you the the, the abstraction that you want there. Um, the second point is about um, like implementing things more efficiently, and this is exactly one of the core things that Prisma does for you that wouldn't be possible with a traditional ORM, since a, a, a traditional ORM is um, like a yeah like a stateless function that uh, gives you a DSL to express your data requirements. Um, as you collect your data requirements, requirements, at some point you say execute. So it sends, uh, it, it builds up a SQL query. It compiles your, your data requirements from your DSL into constructing a unoptimized query, sends that query to your database, and the database um, now has to deal with your, with your crazy query. Um, whereas with Prisma, you, uh, you would basically construct all of your, your data requirements um, through your GraphQL resolver system and just forward them into the Prisma layer. And the Prisma layer has then a query engine um, that can most efficiently like, uh, talk to your database or to, to different databases. And also, since it knows about how data is changing, actually has a caching layer built in. So it's a way more performant way to to access your data. When you and I were discussing these possibilities earlier on, you said, well, if if we supported Postgres, you could use Prisma. It sounds like I've procrastinated myself into support now because you've listed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB currently supported. And then coming soon, Elasticsearch, Neo4j, Cassandra, and an icon that I'm not familiar with. Uh, maybe that's Cassandra's icon. Are the is that your is that the current state of affairs? And can I use this with my Postgres database today? Um, exactly. So for for the the Postgres database, um, we are supporting uh, like we we distinguish between an active connector and a passive connector. So the active connector is where you would use GraphQL SDL and allow Prisma to migrate your database, whereas a passive connector would uh, would be that you map to your existing database and um, you would still migrate your database on, on its own. So for MySQL and Postgres, we both support an active and passive connector. And for MongoDB, we, uh, we, we've just rolled out a, uh, or we're, we're about to, to roll out a um, beta version of, um, I guess, both an active and a passive connector. And over, over the coming months, um, depending on, on user, user feedback, uh, we're we're planning to to add support for for any kind of database really. So uh, did I hear you correctly? Regardless if I use the active or the passive adapter, I'm still going to need to migrate my database to a new format. Um, no. So for the the active connector, there you wouldn't. There you would let Prisma uh, migrate your database. Um, and for a passive connector, um, the the way how you would set that up. So concretely in your case. You would basically um, connect Prisma to your database. Prisma would, uh, for the first time, introspect your current um, your your current database schema. From that, it would generate um, a data model expressed in GraphQL SDL that um, that maps to your existing database schema. And um, from there on, you can either let Prisma take care of migrations in the future. 
or still migrate yourself and you would then still adjust the data model expressed in GraphQL SDL. What about uh, concerns with authentication and authorization? I think we, we often think about authentication, but authorization turns out to be a much hairier issue business logic wise. How are those things handled? So um, the, the, the way how we, um, how we think about that is that authorization is like very much like, of course, there are common cases, but very much that's very specific to your mm -hmm. product that you're building to your company. So the, the best abstraction to really express that is code, especially if you like have already built libraries around that. So th that's just the best abstraction. We, we want to embrace that. So the, the, the way how we allow you to do that is that you would implement that GraphQL, um, that, that, that GraphQL uh, sorry, that, that authorization system in your own GraphQL server. So you would still use Prisma to resolve your data, but you would check who's allowed to access which kind of data in your own GraphQL resolver layer. Um, the same goes for authentication. You would implement your authentication system using JWT or what, whatever you want to use uh, in your own GraphQL server that sits in front of Prisma. And um, then Prisma doesn't need to know about, uh, about authentication or authorization. Of course, Prisma on its own has, has also... Um, a simple authentication uh, system, but that's rather uh, like meant for that a certain like that the service uh, cannot be accessed um, in an unauthenticated uh, way. So more to secure the service-to-service -service communication. This episode is brought to you by our friends at GoCD. GoCD is an open source continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. Check them out at GoCD.org or on GitHub at github.com slash GoCD. GoCD provides continuous delivery out of the box with its built-in pipelines, advanced traceability, and value stream visualization. With GoCD, you can easily model, orchestrate, and visualize complex workflows from end to end with no problem. They support Kubernetes and modern infrastructure with elastic on-demand agents and cloud deployments. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.org slash changelog. It's free to use. And they have professional support and enterprise add-ons available from ThoughtWorks. Once again, gocd.org slash changelog. So Johannes, we've been talking around, obviously, the tech behind this, Prisma, where it's going, but it seems like uh, there's an enterprise being propped up behind this. You've got some news you're coming out with very soon, and a company, it sounds like, going from just simply open source to a company behind this called Prisma as well. Is that the... Is that fair to say? Um, yeah, I guess so. So, I mean, we we have quite a bit of a history, and I think like adding up to like where where we left off with the last episode, um, like we've been super fortunate to build a really big uh, community around us. What we've been doing over the last two years, um, building up GraphQL as a as a GraphQL backend as a service, um, and that has really led us where where we are today. So what we've, um, to, to kind of like give you the, the quick version 
of how all of these things have evolved. Um, it's basically that we've built GraphQL to really like um, make like um, make the barrier to entry for developers, especially front-end developers, to get their own GraphQL backend as low as possible. And um, over the last two years, we've basically seen like a lot of big big companies and a lot of more experienced developers also adopt GraphQL uh, and adopt GraphQL and push GraphQL really to to its limits. Um, where we've seen, okay, we we added like more and more features, we added more and more abstractions to to make it more powerful for for people to build bigger applications with with GraphQL. And what we've seen is like people are more and more um, the the experienced people are more and more looking for like how could they bring their own code to implement the the business logic that they wanted. Um, on the other side, what we've also seen like the more serious a company was. Um, the more of a problem it was for them to like have data living anywhere um, but inside of their cloud or in, um, in, uh, in, on their premises. So um, what we've seen is like we we got requests like, hey, could we run GraphQL on our own, or could we just like just use the the database part of GraphQL for for our project? And that has really been like the foundation for for Prisma that we've seen. Okay, actually. Um, GraphQL consists out of multiple pieces um, and consists out of like the, the core part of it is really like this data mapping unit that maps a database to a GraphQL API. And that has really pushed us to say, okay, let's actually invest in that particular part of the, of the GraphQL framework, which is Prisma as the core query engine. And that sort of like... Um, resulted in this shift of um, focus for us, uh, even going so far that uh, similar how like other companies have done in the past, like Tenzin, for example, changing to MongoDB uh, with their core product being MongoDB, where uh, we took this big step and rebranded the company and all of the community and everything around that from GraphQL to Prisma to really like show our commitment and show our focus um, for for Prisma, so um, and there there are like uh, various angles to that to to explain it, um, but yeah that that's sort of the the, the quick version. Um, and like like you like you teasered, um, we we actually have some some uh, quite exciting news uh, for for us as a company, as we've been uh, very fortunate to have raised a pretty substantial uh, seed round. So we we've just like raised a four point five million dollar seed round from some 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 of the best uh, best investors out of the Silicon Valley, um, where we're just about to to open a second office, um, and that just allows us to to really grow the team, grow the the, the backend development force behind that, um, and allows us to to also grow the the new San Francisco office. So mm-hmm. if any of the of the listeners are looking for a job and are interested in, in GraphQL, uh, definitely uh, go to our jobs page. So Prisma is, a, is an evolution of what you've learned and what the community has asked for around GraphQL and is also a company. So not only an open source, but also a company. You've got cloud coming, you've got enterprise coming, and you just mentioned you got a seed round. So clearly... Uh, you're heading in the right direction in terms of what I think is kind of interesting around open source and combining that with business, right? Is that 
some will offer support or services. In your case, you're adding, it seems, cloud infrastructure and potentially software as a service as the as the for-profit business model on top of your open source. Is that right? Right. So that, that that's that's almost right. So for, for us, uh, the, the focus on like the, the monetization front is really like where we see the biggest demand um, and where we also see like that we can build a substantial business, which is more on the enterprise side. Since what we're building with Prisma uh, as an infrastructure component is like very similar to patterns that are already uh, present in uh, in enterprise software systems. So if you think about it, Prisma and what Prisma enables, like it really enables GraphQL as a universal query language. Um, that's very similar to what you had like a decade ago with ODBC. So that idea is like not new at all and uh, fits in really well into an enterprise context where additionally to the data mapping part, you also have additional requirements, um, mostly around security and um, audit logging, various features around that. There are also many opportunities to just um, implement more um, efficient data loading mechanisms, caching. Um, So this is really what we're we're seeing a lot of demand for, uh, where we're working with with bigger companies on an enterprise um, version of uh, of Prisma, um, and that's really what we what we focus on from a uh, from a, a monetiz- uh, monetization product perspective. Uh, you've also mentioned Prisma Cloud, and what we see with Prisma Cloud is mostly um, sort of em- empowering developers with better workflows around databases. Um, on the foundation that that Prisma provides, so you can think about Pris- uh, around Prisma Cloud kind of like as a um, database um, workflow platform. So this will over over time will build various integrations with different cloud providers where you actually host your um, where you, where you actually host your Prisma server where you host your database. So you could, for example connect with Prisma Cloud, connect to your AWS account where you run your database, let's say on AWS Aurora, and you're running your um, Prisma server um, on like ECS or on Fargate, and you get all of the instrumentation uh, insights via Prisma Cloud. But uh, more importantly, uh, you get a lot of workflows around that. So we, for example, have a feature that's called a data browser. So think about that like... Um, maybe you know, you've uh, you've seen SQL um, SQL Pro or Postico or like or like oh, yeah. think back PHP my admin. Um, so oh, no. tool, tools like <laughs> <laughs> don't go that far. So, so, <laughs> sorry about Postico, that. Postico, let's stay um, there. Yeah. So exactly. yeah, that, that that's a good one. So think think about that um, and like for your data and like uh, across any kind of database. So one for developers, but also for like non business uh, for non developers for like more more business users. Um, so like we we see uh, we see a lot of uh, a lot of companies. Um, using Prisma Cloud, um, basically to roll out the the rollout access to their entire customer su- uh, support team, to their entire marketing team, to their entire sales team, that they get access to the actual application data um, without the development team needing to build uh, a lot of like admin uh, backend interfaces or like these 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 admin panels. 
So um, that's certainly a workflow that that we that we see a lot, but also uh, workflows around like typical development processes. So um, if like thinking about continuous deployment, um, we we actually uh, will roll out an integration with GitHub that you can simply like push uh, like push your changes to your GitHub repository. And Prisma Cloud will um, will deploy the database changes on your behalf. So um, if you're familiar with Netlify, for example, how you can simply push your changes to GitHub and Netlify automatically deploys your new website. Think about the same thing, but actually for your database and your database migrations, where like uh, changes that uh, are like non-destructive, they it can be configured in such a way that it's just like rolled out. Um, and like, if there are database changes that might actually like introduce some breaking changes, that sort of batch up, and you can manually uh, decide to roll it out into production. So various workflows around that, and this is what we're offering for free with um, with Prisma Cloud, uh, that that people can just get better better workflows. And if people want the same sort of workflows but more in a um, in a company setting. Um, where all of that lives um, in your own cloud or where all of that lives like on-premises, this is where you can get the same features as part of the enterprise edition. So it's actually going to be an on-premise product for enterprise. So there, there are these two, two different products. So there's Prisma Cloud and Prisma Enterprise. And both of them like uh, both of them offer like this Prisma platform. So this, this value add, these additional workflows um, around Prisma. So Prisma Cloud offers that like in a in a hosted way that you that you can like use as a free uh, SaaS product um, right right away that integrates okay. with with GitHub or like with your um, with your AWS account or we're we're actually uh, also working with the guys at Site um, to also um, um, implement uh, integration there uh, and if you want to use all of that um, on premises so that um, like. You're, you you can you can enforce your data privacy rules etc. Um, this is where you, you we can deploy the the Prisma platform um, in in your own cloud or on your on premise servers. So first of all, congratulations. Uh, we breezed over your four point five million uh, round, but that's a lot of money and probably a lot of work. So congratulations on that. Feel free to name names. You said you've you've convinced some of the smartest people in the valley. Well. Uh, Name names by all means. Let let us know who's 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 getting behind you. The, this round was um, was led by by Kleiner Perkins um, at Kleiner Perkins um, by Mamoon and Bucky. Mamoon, for example, has been involved with Slack, Intercom, Box, like various like very well known companies. Um, and we really feel that that we have a we have a great home there, um, like as part of like a new generation of development tools. Um, that they that they really uh, invest a lot into, um, and we've also worked with uh, with various other um, smaller investors, and like also got a lot of uh, great angels on board. Uh, like for example, um, Guillermo Rauch from uh, from Site actually, or one of the creators of GraphQL uh, came in as an angel investor. Uh, we have the CEO of Cockroach. We have the CEO of um, of Kong, like ver- various uh, experts mm-hmm. in the yeah. in the industry who really like uh, can help us a lot with um, 
uh, like strategic advice and just like building a great partnership there. Uh, we also have like the the founder of Algolia. Um, so various various people yeah. we're super grateful for for having on board there. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the questions I was gonna ask is is you know was there a tough was the sales pitch tougher in terms of getting them to invest because of the open source nature? But the names that you're naming, it sounds like these people understand open source businesses like yeah. natively. Oh yeah, for sure. So it was actually funny that you mentioned that since like um, it was almost like a, a filter for us to see like who are we talking to or who we're not talking to as part of this um, <laughs> like the, the this, this fundraising process. Uh, we really wanted to make sure that we work with people who understand open source. Um, and like a lot of people even go as far as like if you're building nowadays, if you're building um if you're building software uh, for developers, um, even also especially at an at enterprise grade, and it's like not open source, um, then that that sort of doesn't make sense. So like really? open source is really like the 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 entry um, the the entry ticket for you to um, to to even be considered in in a new enterprise environment such a counter way of thinking than like years ago right jared it's like yeah to hear that i mean it's that's how it's playing out but to hear someone say it out loud is sort of like oh it's different yeah for sure that the, the the world is completely changing in, in in that regard but it makes sense like um like if you think back 10 20 years ago uh, most of enterprise software has been like um, so top down, um, and CIOs have have like made the decision of like, okay, we're gonna adopt this software, and like then uh, rolled it out in the entire company, and has been adopted or become shelfer. Um, but nowadays, like you have like like we uh, talked about at the beginning of the show, we have now front end developers who really want to start adopting a technology, <laughs> and whether they're allowed or not, they they start doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, so bottom up adoption is really like the new default. And yeah. like things can't like it's almost impossible to have like bottom up adoption um, that's not based on on open source. Um, so that that's uh, that that's pretty obvious for us. That's interesting perspective too. Just you know, not the developers are the bottom up, but we're the you know we're the doers, the implementers. So it's you know the bare metal up maybe might be bottom is sort of a negative connotation, but I, I'm feeling <laughs> you, and I get to say that often to our sponsors. It's like. Listen, like, you know, we talk to the influencers out there. So, like, this is a great platform for you to share your message. And hearing you say that just, like, is music to my ears because I, I see that so often. Oh, yeah, for, for sure. I mean, this is how you, how you sort of, like, get a foothold in a company also in a way that, um, like, and that ties in very, very well with, like, sort of the how we think about, um, like, our adoption strategy. Since um, like Prisma on its own is like completely open source and completely free to use, um, and the developers who start using it, um, they don't even think yet about like these kind of enterprise features mm-hmm. that they that they have. But once once it, it certain um, reaches a certain level in the company, then the, the the like more compliance features, security features, and so on kick in. And there, then it sort of turns around, right? So the the entire open source uh, angle that um, that that allows for a bottom up movement. But once it reaches such a level, then they're like looking at at it as a company is okay. Like, but do they provide us like an enterprise um, version of that? Does that come with like uh, with uh, premium grade support? 
Um, what about SLAs? What about like different certifications? And this is where an enterprise version comes in, which that on its own not necessarily has to be open source. Um, more and more companies actually also have their enterprise version uh, open source. Uh, I think you, you just like spoke about exactly that um, uh, in, in regards to, to Elastic on one of the previous shows. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, open source is really like the, the key for, for this bottom-up movement. Well, on that note, I mean, how maybe you can more clearly define the line between open source Prism and, you know, Prism Enterprise. It's on Prisma. Jeez, <laughs> I've said that in the break, y'all. I'm sorry. I keep saying Prism, and that's my bad. Prisma. Uh, Prisma open source and Prisma Enterprise. The, thank you, Jerry, for correcting me, by the way. <laughs> it's so embarrassing. Um, how do you define the difference you know how do you put features into open source and how do you define what doesn't go back into open source if a for example a pull request comes in for a contribution that collides with your vision for enterprise how do you discern whether or not to enable that that's that's some of the often questions asked out there in open source around businesses being built around open source Right. So the the good news there is like that it's typically fairly fairly straightforward and a lot of the features that we um, that we want to put into the enterprise version, um, like the the bottom up uh, movement, like the the bottom up movement doesn't really ask for that. So no um, front end React developer would ask about like this this sort of like compliance um, or certain audit logging. What they ask about like, hey, does this does this support um, Postgres? Does it support Mongo? Or does it support this um, this GraphQL feature? And our philosophy around that is very much like you should be able to run Prisma completely in in production without without any caveat um, from from a um, functionality point of view. Um, like we don't want to restrict you running running Prisma in in, in production, but the then there is like a, a fairly clear line to towards like enterprise grade features which is then available in the in the enterprise version um so again things around security are part of that um like audit logging but also certain um compliance features um certain uh authentication mechanisms that you for example for prisma um for the prisma platform you get like saml in um a, a saml authentic a single sign on uh, mechanism Mm-hmm. Um, you you get you, you get various logging mechanisms. Um, you, you get you get better ways to to collaborate in certain workflows that you need uh, in a in a bigger company. So this is sort of where we where we draw the line. And I guess the reason why I asked that question too is I saw two there: one accelerator, quick accelerator, and then performance metrics. So anytime you talk about speed or you know any advancements in say an enterprise or a pro only version, when you talk about open core or whatever model you want to call this um how that may i guess in that case maybe general open source developers using it don't care but maybe some might be like hey it's accelerated in the premium version for enterprises on premise but not for me and can i contribute that back or why Uh, exactly And, and a lot of these things are basically um things that we built for you so don't you don't have to build them yourself so um for example this performance monitoring 
uh, like once you roll out a certain system, you also think about like how can I monitor it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and these are things that you would build yourself or you get like out of the box as part of a um, of a of a premium version of an enterprise version. Um, so that that's a fairly common play. Well, in the first part of the conversation, we talked quite a bit about how, you know, we haven't talked to you in basically a year. So we were catching up. And I believe in the last conversation we had, we talked about the GraphQL conference. And I think, Jared, if I remember correctly, I think we were talking to him right around the same time the conference was taking place again. And this this next one's happening in June. So maybe there's some... <laughs> I think. I think that's right. It was June-ish yeah. when we published the last episode. So. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's been basically a year, and here comes the next conference. Tell us more about how the community's changed, what's going on with this conference. Yeah, that, that's funny. That That's great timing. Um, yeah, we, we have the, the, the GraphQL Europe conference 2018 uh, just coming up. Um, in um, mid of June, so mm-hmm. uh, that that's that's actually the the graph um, the June eighteenth. Um, sorry, sorry about that. June fifteenth. June fifteenth. <laughs> June fifteenth. Better get um, that day right. Ba- back back in Berlin. Um, so this year we will have like uh, twice as many uh, attendees, and just a couple of days ago. Um, We've been uh, to, together with with a couple of other um, people in the in the GraphQL ecosystem, like um, Lee Byron, one of the creators of GraphQL, who is always helping us to um, to select the the speakers. Um, so we've just finalized um, uh, the speaker schedule, which we'll announce over the the next couple of weeks. But we have like some really really top notch um, speakers in there, and it was like crazy difficult for us to select. Uh, select all of these select all of these talks so like we we got multiple hundreds of of really fantastic talk submissions so it was really tough for us to 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 decide there um but i think we we got a really fantastic lineup of um of speakers of very diverse speakers and uh super interesting talks um so i'm super excited for that and uh Actually, as as part of uh, as part of this show, uh, we've prepared a um, a discount code, uh, which gives you fifteen uh, percent off, um, which is called ChangeLog. <laughs> um, so nice. like hopefully, that. Uh, for 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 some of your um, for some of your listeners um, who are looking for an excuse to come out to to Berlin um on, on june 15th um hopefully that that makes it a bit easier for them and one of your speakers peggy raises uh engineer at apollo she's actually on an upcoming episode of the react podcast which is also in our podcast network so stay tuned awesome. to that yeah great i mean that's interesting so you got you know the evolution of of graphical to prisma and then you've got a company formed around it. You got uh, a seed round, which is substantial, four point five million. Great investors, people who clearly understand the landscape of developer tooling, and not only that, but the importance of it being open source as it pertains to growth and enterprise and all the for profit models you need to have to actually have developers working on some of these tooling. Uh, you got your hands full. Then this conference, and then GraphQL Radio podcast. I believe you got. Lots of things happening. How do you how do you manage your time? It's crazy. Uh, well, that, that's a question that that the, the answer for that constantly changes. <laughs> uh, the uh, very little sleep. So, well, <laughs> that, that's definitely one of the trade offs that that I have to take into account. 
Um, but like the, the 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 most important answer for that is really like um, having a fantastic team that that we're working with and yeah. that, that we are that we're growing and just like it's been so incredible to to see our team just taking on more and more responsibilities um, and yeah just driving that um, and uh, yeah this is this is where where I'm surprised sometimes myself with like all of the amazing things we're doing uh, since I it's it's not just me behind all of these anymore. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that that that's that's super awesome. Curious, what size is your team these days? So, as we speak today, we're uh, we're still just nine people, um, but we uh, we're expecting to to almost double that towards the end of this year. Uh, so, most around um, engineering, uh, most around the engineering capacity. So, both in, in, the, in the front end, um, but also more uh, also in, in, the, in the front end around the product. But also around uh, our open source projects, um, and uh, also as, as mentioned, we're opening a, a smaller office in San Francisco, mostly around um, just being closer with the with the local community there. Um, having like I'm starting a sales team over there, um, and just um, investing a bit more into into marketing. So nice. if any of these things um, sound interesting to, to to some of the, some of the, the listeners, yeah, please please free, feel free to to either get in touch with me personally via Twitter or or email, um, or just like go to our jobs page. That's Prisma.io/jobs, but I, I guess we'll also put that into the show notes. Hundred percent. We'll put that in the show notes for sure. That's awesome. I mean, definitely seen lots of change for you all in the right direction. San Francisco office, I didn't mention, but you just did. That's that's amazing. Building a marketing team, sales team seems you know totally time for that right now. But uh, anything else you want to say in closing for, uh, for the listeners before we tail off? No, that. But it's been fantastic to 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 have been on the show again. And like, let let's see what what happens until until next year. We'll see you next June, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, I'll I'll put it into into the calendar. No, we'll, we'll, we'll mark the date right now. Next June. Well, actually, it's May right now, so it's it's, it's May. It's barely May. But I mean, you know, it's I'm basically. All excited. Yeah, we're, we're we're a month early this year, so we'll see. Maybe it's maybe it's ten months from now instead of eleven. But whatever. Johannes, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for all you do in the open source community. And I mean, you just do so much. You've got a great team you're growing there, great business you're growing there. Do awesome stuff for open source. And uh, thank you so much for taking your time to join us here on the show. Thank you. For sure. Thanks so much. All right, that's it for this episode. If you enjoyed it, do us a favor. Tell a friend. Go on Twitter and share the URL. That'll unfurl a player. Your friends can play it right there in their Twitter timeline. And, of course, thank you to our sponsors, Rollbar, DigitalOcean, and GoCD. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we catch our errors before our users do because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Head to Leno.com slash changelog. Check them out and support this show. This show is hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and Jared Santo. Editing is done by Tim Smith. Music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week.